Mobilize is a podcast that puts a spotlight on and is a resource for people, people, friends, communities, communities activists, activists who have decided to stand up, resist, 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 fight back, mobilize. Episode 32, What We've Learned from COVID and What We Haven't. In April and May of 2020, I interviewed three medical care providers to get their perspective on the COVID-19 pandemic at a time when they were just emerging from the first surge. Now, two years later, I was able to catch up again with Maryland cardiologist Stanley Liu and family nurse practitioner Julia Gabriel about how things have changed for them and how the pandemic has affected the practice of medicine in America. The last time we spoke was during the first wave um, and, you know, pre-vaccine, we didn't even have testing. And at that time, I had separated from my family um, to keep them safe because we didn't know what was going to happen. We had a PPE shortage and that lasted about two and a half months. Uh, our family has thankfully been together ever since then. We have vaccines. I've been vaccinated. I've been boosted. Most of my colleagues have been the same. My kids are going back to daycare with masks on, and I spend a lot more time now doing vaccine counseling than I do taking care of sick COVID patients. COVID did create like a weird kind of boom in the medical industry, but there were so many things about my other job that I didn't have any control over that I didn't really like. And I've always kind of wanted to have my own practice just to be able to pay people like what they're worth and not be rushed through seeing like 60 patients in a day. <laughs> So yeah, that is what I'm doing now, which is exciting. Omicron like was actually great for business, not so great for everyone in the world. But yeah, we were seeing maybe five to six patients on average a day, some days like one patient. <laughs> and then it just like got busy all of a sudden. And then I had to like hire somebody else. Now it's kind of calmed down to like a steady level. But yeah, we definitely saw that peak over the holidays. January was a very brutal month. Omicron was just so contagious and kind of punched through vaccinated people. I remember on New Year's Eve weekend, and I was consulting in the emergency department, and there were about 60 people in the waiting room because there was a huge backlog, so many people coming in. And the emergency doctor said the total number of COVID negative patients in the entire emergency room at that point was two. Everybody else had COVID, whether they knew it or not. And you know what we realized was that half of the people in the waiting room were probably infected, and they were probably infecting the other half while they were all waiting there. I mean, it was really, really bad. So I actually came home after that, and my wife and I made the decision we weren't going to send our kids back to daycare. As of the time we are talking right now, there is no vaccine approved for children under five. And I have two children under five, and that was something that was really terrifying for me. So they ended up spending January at home. We, you know, we were lucky we had the means to do so. We had a lot of family support. And thankfully, they uh, were able to escape COVID. But I know a lot of 
my colleagues and a lot of their children really got sick, and despite doing everything right, right, wearing masks, getting vaccinated, and our hospital started a program where they would distribute home antigen tests to employees, but they quickly got overwhelmed. And we ran into this situation very similar to in 2020 when we didn't have enough PPE. And so one of the things my colleagues and I ended up doing was we actually paid, I think, a couple of thousand dollars to buy a shipment of home antigen tests from a company in China for our cardiology fellows, many of whom had young children or pregnant spouses, that kind of thing. The more affordable one was out of stock. Um, and then you could get the these other tests, but they're more expensive. And then eventually those became out of stock. <laughs> I thought about like getting an in-house PCR machine, um, but then we actually switched labs to like a smaller lab and they're returning the PCR results like the next day. So that's been a little better for people. Uh, now it's kind of calmed down to like a steady level. I think there's just confusion about like when people are supposed to go back to work. And yeah, it seems like a little strange that they put it down to five days. Like I understand that it's hard to be out for a whole 10 days, but it'd be interesting to look at the data on like how contagious it is and for how long I know. I always thought that was like too short. When I see patients in my cardiology clinic, one of the things I always uh, want to check up on is what their vaccination status is, because folks who have heart issues are more likely to have severe COVID illness. People's opinions are all over the place, and they are all 100% sure of what they believe. And it's just so interesting to me because I wish I could just put them all in a room because they can't all be right. I think there is just so much out there, real and fake. And in people's defense, I don't think we as the medical establishment have made it easy. I know I myself certainly did lose a lot of faith in the CDC and the WHO and their competency early on in the pandemic. A lot of it was confused messaging and a lot of it was, and this is my personal opinion, making policy based on science, but completely ignoring the psychology of human behavior. And I, I thought this was most apparent back in the initial phases of the pandemic. The CDC recommendation was that only people with symptoms should be wearing masks. If you're feeling symptomatic and you want to go get groceries and you put on a mask and no one else is wearing it, like the CDC might as well ask you to write, I think I have COVID-19 on your forehead, right? Who's going to do that? Honestly, the one thing that will predict whether a patient will value what I have to say is how long I've known them and how much they trust me. Because I've realized that it's not my medical degree or my position that influences people. It's whether patients really believe I have their back. And so when I have a patient who is less familiar with me, like a newer patient or something like that, it pretty much doesn't matter what I say. They're going to believe what they want to believe. But when I have a patient who I've known for years, they will really value what I have to say. And it's really interesting because they will be visibly uncomfortable if I say something that they disagree with because they've trusted me with so much else and they will at least think about it. And I think that extends to anybody. You know, the people that you trust in your life are the ones you're going to listen to. Just as an example, a few months ago, I had a patient who had significant heart issues and it turned out he had not been vaccinated. And, you know, we talked about it and he 
was very, very much not on the vaccine bandwagon. But I told him that, you know, with his history, like if he got infected, he would really be in trouble. And I was worried about him because he had been through a lot of hospitalizations before and barely made it out. And he took that to heart and he went and got a vaccination. The irony was he was already infected when he was in my clinic. He went to the hospital two days later and was in an ICU for COVID pneumonia. Um, he made it out, but I wanted to bang my head on the wall because it was just such a waste. You know, that trust actually led to actionable change and it was just too late. So I was in Langley Park, which is like a huge Latino center in Maryland, probably like 99% like Spanish speaking population and like 80% of our patients are uninsured and undocumented and insured patients, mostly like Medicaid, Medicare. We offered the vaccine for free through the state. And yeah, most people just would come in. And even if they weren't there for the vaccine, if you offered it to them, they'd say, okay, sure. I mean, we're still giving vaccines now. So people who have never gotten their first dose, I do feel like there was kind of misinformation, but not so much like hesitancy. Like, I don't know, there's like stories. Like if you ask somebody, well, do you know someone who got sick from the vaccine? You know, it's a friend of a friend or I heard this story. Just felt kind of like a scare tactic. One woman who came in, she just said like in her family, nobody was vaccinated. So if that's the dominant thought in your family, I think it's hard for people to break that. Also, it's the same like issue of trust. People are worried about getting deported. They have to kind of hear through word of mouth that it's like a safe place to be. But once they do like find a place that they like, they usually will stick with it. They'll stick with that provider. But it, yeah, it's a matter of them finding it. There is a chance that you could have a bad reaction to the vaccine. Like that's not something that's just made up. I had one man who he might've like gotten seriously sick from it. He had endocarditis, an otherwise healthy, I think he was around 50. So that was definitely an outlier. I saw some people with swelling under the arm and one girl who had kind of like a, like a herpes lesion outbreak on her lip, which it just can kind of trigger that immune response. But for the majority of people, it was totally fine. It is difficult, yeah, when you have a solution and if, you know, more people were on board with it, then we wouldn't be dealing with the variants in such a huge way. And I know it's been like politicized and everything, but it just seems bizarre to me that people will <laughs> basically trust medical science, but then like not trust this vaccine. But I mean, it does feel like we're in an age where there's more distrust of everything. I mean, we've been doing this for two years now, and we've seen multiple surges, and it feels like we're always in fight or flight mode. Luckily, uh, my time has been less in the hospital. I say luckily for my own mental well-being and more in the clinic. The great resignation, um, which is kind of happening everywhere, has really hit healthcare. And I know nationwide, like a lot of older doctors, they just hung up their stethoscopes. Like, why deal with this? You know, why put themselves at risk? And particularly critical care nurses. These are nurses who will work 12-hour shifts in an ICU. And they've basically been the real frontline fighters against this disease since March of 2020. They have been historically very undervalued, underpaid, underrespected. A lot of them got sick. A lot of them decided there were just too many other things important to them in their lives and they've just left. And the hospitals who needed nurses, 
they were willing to pay a lot for travel nurses to join their hospitals. So what you ended up seeing was some staff nurses who are making the same wages that they did pre-COVID, training these new nurses who are making way more than they do, but have none of the experience. And I personally know nurses who quit their jobs at my hospital because they found a gig somewhere else that's going to pay them double what they make. And so that leads to worsened burnout for those who stay. And the lack of nurses might mean that we have beds available, but no one to staff them. So I've had cases where my patients can't get in. And probably the most egregious one is I had a really sick patient who was in a different emergency room waiting to be transferred to our hospital. And I tried to work back channels and everything to get this patient in to no avail. And this patient was just way too complicated for this particular emergency room and ended up dying in the emergency room prior to transfer. The patient I've been taking care of for a long time. And, you know, that's heartbreaking. And I, and I know that that kind of thing is happening all over the place. Patients who are scheduled for surgical resections of cancer, like those are being delayed because there are no beds for them. And meanwhile, they're Cancer might be spreading, but that's the risk they have to take and there's nothing else they can do. You know, if you have a injury from a car accident, you might be in the emergency room for a very, very long time. The capacity of our safety net right now to take care of emergencies has really fallen. And there's also been a lot more influx of patients coming to the emergency room who have had diseases that they've neglected over the past year and a half. Diabetes that's gotten out of control. Now they, ha they have infections and organ failure because they haven't gone out to see their doctors when minor problems have arisen. I certainly see a lot of that with our heart patients, you know, and a lot of them were trying to do the right thing. They're trying to socially distance, not try to go out any more than they needed to, recognizing that they were at high risk for infection. But that isolation from the more preventive side of the healthcare system has led to a lot of really bad things that require acute care, just as all this other stuff is happening. And so my takeaway from that is, yes, the pandemic is still going on, but please don't neglect prevention because right now we are not in a great situation where we can rescue people. You know, I, I don't know what different hospitals or uh, public health departments are doing to address that, but I haven't seen much change in the overall infrastructure or culture in the healthcare field other than, thank you, you're brave, we should be proud of that. Maybe the hospital will throw a pizza party, you know? But really, like, what we need is sustainable support to do our jobs, to feel safe. And I think a lot of people are leaving because they don't see that coming. It's not just in medicine, right? This is happening, I think, with teachers in schools who are dealing with staffing shortages, but somebody still got to teach the kids, right? And it's the same in the hospital. Somebody still has to take care of the patient. Somebody has to make the food, clean the floors, prepare the medications. Uh, I guess it's both a blessing and curse of being essential, right? And that's the tough part. You know, if you feel like you're part of something that matters, that will drive people to go the extra mile. I think that feeling just gave way to exhaustion and burnout and the feeling that nobody really has their backs. You know, what do you do when the essential people want out? It is hard. Like I have my one patient who's undocumented and he has like terminal cancer. And it's just been so difficult to get any kind of chemotherapy for him. Any like doctor's visits that aren't through the ER. 
they're not covered. Some of the hospitals will do like he did qualify for financial aid, so they'll pay maybe 50% of his bill, but it's very, very expensive. And I didn't realize like how out of options people are like when they get cancer and they're undocumented in this country. I don't know. I mean, this is like a man who worked in the United States for like 20 years, paid taxes and stuff. He's contributed to this society and there's no reason why the society shouldn't be giving him chemo. There are tons of people who die in this country because they can't access the system. It would be great if we thought of the bottom first because that is really like the solution to cover your most vulnerable people. Lowest income, undocumented, that should be like the first priority. That is my goal is to connect with those patients and to have it primarily be a place for people who don't have access to care. I took another part-time job working for a company that works just with transgender patients. So it was really awesome working with and learning about that from not only a hormone management perspective, but also primary care and then elderly patients. Like there's a whole spectrum of care and realizing how also inaccessible the healthcare system can be for trans patients, which I really didn't think about that much before. There's a phenomenon called gatekeeping where some providers are not really knowledgeable about hormone replacement therapy. So patients have to wait a very long time or doctors just aren't comfortable prescribing medications probably because they haven't done it before. Like Chase Brexton and Johns Hopkins are like great centers for care, but the demand is so high that people have to wait, you know, months just to get an appointment. And then also just kind of like walking into a doctor and not knowing what kind of a reaction you're going to get, or just like facing discrimination is pretty common too. But I've already even just from opening this practice, and I haven't even really advertised it that much, been contacted by trans patients, which is really awesome. So I'm glad that I can fill that need in the community. I can understand everyone wanting to surface for air and have some semblance of normalcy. But right now, what I see is everyone saying, oh, it's all over. And what I would love to hear people saying is, it's all over for now. Here's how we're going to protect against the next one. So we will be better ready this time. Like we're going to distribute N95 masks here. We're going to have home antigen tests for free here distributed this way, like that kind of thing. What's hard for me to watch is that these decisions aren't necessarily being driven by data or science. They're being driven by relief or exasperation and or politics. Yeah, it's just not clear what metrics are being used to guide those decisions. And it's different everywhere. And so the follow up question would be, well, if things got worse again, what criteria would then be used to reinstate such mandates if they needed to happen again? You know, because we're going to it's going to happen again. Your crystal ball is as cloudy as mine, but I, I think we've seen, you know, every few months we've had a surge. And I don't see how that is going to change anytime soon.
That's what we're raising.